Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your co-hosts, Todd Benton and James Maynard. Today's topic, Men and Their Egos, A Halloween Tale. The ego is the ultimate hobgoblin. It knocks at the doorway to our minds and warns us, trick or treat. If we don't do what the ego wants, there will be a price to pay. But if we give in to its every demand, it will give us ego candy as our reward. But is ego candy what we really need? Or is the ego tricking us into thinking that what we need is candy for our egos instead of food for our souls? Stay tuned for a Halloween discussion about men and their egos. Together we'll explore what does the ego want from us? What does the ego reward us with? How does that impact us? What do our souls crave? How does the ego punish us when we give ourselves what our souls crave? How are we then more vulnerable to either competing with other men or giving in to those who look more powerful than we are? If you want to stop being haunted by the ego telling you who and what to be, stay tuned. Your calls are welcome if you'd like to share a comment or a question. But first, we're going to start with the interrevolutionary news. Did you know that girls spend 40% more time on domestic chores than boys worldwide? This, from U.S. News and World Report, dated October the 12th. Girls spend 550 million daily hours on domestic chores globally. That's 160 million more hours than boys their age. Girls under 15 years old spend 40% more hours than boys their age on household chores every day globally, according to a recent UNICEF study. For 10 to 14-year-old girls, it's 50% more hours a day than boys their age. Boys are more likely to be involved in economic activities, the report said. In some countries, 10 to 14-year-old girls spend an average of 26 hours a week on domestic work. This disparity is a big deal because there are about 1.1 billion girls under 18 worldwide. The gendered distribution of chores can affect girls' potential and self-esteem when it socializes them into thinking girls and women are only suited for domestic work. The undue burden of chores contributes to why so many girls are forced to drop out of school in developing countries. Quote, the overburden of unpaid household work begins in early childhood and intensifies as girls reach adolescence, UNICEF's principal gender advisor, Anju Moholtra. As a result, girls sacrifice important opportunities to learn, grow, and just enjoy their childhood. This unequal distribution of labor among children also perpetuates gender stereotypes and the double burden on women and girls across generations. Quote, quantifying the challenges girls face is the first critical step towards meeting the sustainable development goal on gender equality and breaking down barriers that confront the world's 1.1 billion girls, said UNICEF Chief of Data and Analytics, Attila Hansioglu. Todd, do you suppose these facts have contributed to men's egos looking down at household chores as women's work? Uh, yeah, I I think so. Uh, though that uh, wasn't the case in my family. I well, it was. It was. I have to admit, it was. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't mine too. Yeah, it really was. My 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 mother worked and did the household chores. Yeah, my mother didn't work until my mom and dad got divorced. So my dad, I mean, he helped with cooking. And that's one of the reasons I think I cook. But um, he didn't do laundry. I mean, my mom did really all the other household chores. And she did most of the cooking. He just happened to do some of the cooking. Yeah. And I noticed in myself 
throughout most of my adult life, I've expected the woman to do the bulk of the household chores. And it really wasn't until my current marriage that I had to take on, that I chose to take on a lot more. <laughs> that was interesting how you said that. <laughs> yeah, I had to. I, well, it just so happened she's chronically ill and disabled, so I had to. <laughs> if I was going to eat, if I was going to have my clothes laundered, and if the house was going to be neat and clean. <laughs> right, right. Although we do have somebody come in once a week to uh, do the latter ones. <laughs> and so uh, another question I have is, have these facts contributed to a male attitude of superiority toward females? I think, yeah. I mean, I think it does. I think it contributes. I think that's really what the, what the story, you know, the news item that you just read tells us. I mean, that's what I was left with. That yeah. we're kind of left with this idea that men are, you know, men are more important. We're more, yeah. we're more something. You know, we deserve uh, special, you know, treatment. And don't make me do anything when I come home because I'm working all day. There you go. Yeah. Same in my family. And I carried it over into a lot of my uh, relationships. And so that I think we can, we're admitting that we carry a certain entitlement. And a lot of men do. Uh, and so is that in the case of your family now, Todd? Is no. Um, I think we are pretty even on the distribution of work um, around the house. In fact, I probably do more. You know, my wife works longer hours than I do. I work part-time and she works full-time. So, you know, we have a pretty fair distribution. I, it's more, but it's, it's, um, it's more uh, centered around who's good at doing certain things. It's not so much about gender roles. It's really about who's, who's you know, I do the dishes mostly because I get them cleaner. <laughs> and I'm not putting Christine down with that comment, and she'll admit it as much as I will. And, you know, our boys do the dishes, and they don't get them clean either. So it's kind of like I get them clean. I guess, you know, I'm the one to do the job, even though I'd rather, you know, sometimes someone else do it. But then when, you know, you look in the pot and it's, Got oil on the bottom, <laughs> so so you, you know, so you wound up having to do it too. Yeah, well, to sure I I take it right. on. I mean, yeah, yeah, I yeah. Do it. yeah. And um, like I said, I do most of the cooking, and you know, but we we I think evenly share or try and evenly share just based on our work. But like I said, Christine, you know, brings in. Well, I didn't say this part, but she brings in the majority of the income, like way more than I do, and um, so you know. I think um, it's interesting. I think for a lot of families, it has switched that the man isn't the one making the most income or they're making equal income. So there should be an equal distribution of labor. And, uh, you know, I like the idea of it basing on, on, you know, who's, who's best suited to do the particular job. Christine is much better in working with our children and supporting them in their homework. Now, it doesn't mean that she does that solely, um, and early on in our relationship, I just kind of was completely hands off one, because I didn't think I was very competent, but I was happy for her to do it cause I could do other things, you know, but now I think we have a much more equal place in, you know, raising our children and making sure that they're getting support from both of us. Well, that's wonderful. That, that, that really sounds like you're living, living out a, a different kind of paradigm than the kind we were raised in. Yeah. Okay. Okay, here's another news item from the Center for Children and Families in the Justice System, entitled Characteristics of Abusive Men. And in parenthesis, I want to point out that uh, a researcher in a separate study uh, concluded that uh, the most common characteristic of an abusive man was having a large ego, which is the topic of this show. 
So uh, this Center for the Children and Families uh, came up with uh, some 11 characteristics. The first one being control as the overarching behavioral characteristic of abusive men, which is achieved through criticism, verbal abuse, financial control, isolation, cruelty, and so on. And this need to control may deepen over time or escalate if a woman seeks independence. Uh, the second Does that one sound is, like someone that's running for president? Oh, you should hear all of these characteristics. It sounds, every one of these characteristics sounds like the Trump man. Okay, next one. Entitlement. This is the overarching attitudinal characteristic of abusive men. A belief in having special rights without responsibilities, justifying unreasonable expectations. For example, family life must center on his needs. And then he will feel the wronged party when his needs are not met and may justify violence as self-defense. Another one is selfishness and self-centeredness. An expectation of being the center of attention Having his needs anticipated, he may not support or listen to others. And here's a big one, superiority, an attitude of superiority or even contempt for women. The woman as stupid, unworthy, a sex object, or as a housekeeper. Now, isn't that something Donald Trump called uh, Miss Universe, a housekeeper, let alone other women? That's very interesting. Possessiveness, seeing a woman and his children as his property. Confusing love and abuse, explaining violence as an expression of his deep love. Manipulativeness, a tactic of confusion, distortion, and lies. May project image of himself as good and portray the woman as crazy or abusive. We're hearing that in the political campaign, too. Contradictory statements and behaviors, saying one thing and doing another, such as being publicly critical of men who abuse women. Externalization of responsibility. Shifting blame for his actions and their effects to others, especially the woman, or to external factors such as job stress. Denial, minimization, and victim blaming. Refusing to acknowledge abusive behavior, for example, she fell. Not acknowledging the seriousness of his behavior and its effects, such as, it's just a scratch. Blaming the victim, such as, she drove me to it. She made it up because I have a new girlfriend. Men can exhibit some or all of these characteristics and never physically assault a woman, so we wanted to put that in there too. So isn't that interesting? So uh, now we're going to go on to our topic for the show, men and their egos. So listeners out there, if you'd like to call in with a question or a comment, please call us. And by women are invited to call too if you have been impacted by a man's ego in your life. <laughs> I think that's just about everybody. Right. Uh, and so the number to call is 1-866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. So uh, we can now carry on with our discussion. Uh, Todd, would you like to ask the first question? Sure. So what do we mean by ego? Well, uh, I, do you want to yeah, answer so, that? Uh, I could answer that. Uh, one definition that we're working with here on the show is the ego is the awareness of individual existence. That's it. Awareness of individual existence uh, and awareness of separation from other beings. And this is something we got from the book Living with Reality by Beth Green, which, by the way, is available free online at uh, her website. 
And the introduction is Ego, Instinct, and Evolution, and it really um, goes into kind of the genesis of the ego and how everything has ego. Everything that has some form of differentiation from other things wants to continue to exist. So this, that is the essence of ego, the, the awareness of its individual existence and the desire to want to continue to exist. Yes, very good. Uh, the next question, uh, what does the ego want from us? Todd, do you have something you'd like to say about that? Sure. The ego's job is to sur- ensure our survival, which I was kind of alluding to in the response to the first question. So the ego focuses on its own narrow needs from infancy on, and over time develop strategies for getting its needs met. So uh, you have some examples of how that plays out? Uh, Yeah, uh, for example, being the good little boy or the good little girl, uh, being the best achiever. I know that in my family, I had a brother born one year after me, so I competed to look better to my parents than him. So I competed in school to make better grades, I competed to be uh, the good boy helping to set the table for dinner, uh, stuff like that. Uh, Continually competing uh, to make sure that I was the the fair-haired one who got the most attention. I'm laughing because um, it was very similar in our family. Now, I had a sister who was born 18 months before I was, and she was always (laughs) causing some kind of trouble. So... I definitely took on the strategy of being the good boy, you know, of being the good one. Um, you know, and that worked really well. I mean, I might had my mom totally snowed, um, you know, till I was 13 and started like, you know, I, I wasn't ditching school, but I was going to the um, bowling alley and getting stoned with my friends. <laughs> she was completely <laughs> unaware. I was still the good one in her eyes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, but I think, you know, the point is we're, we're trying to get our needs met and we're trying to show, you know, that we're worthy of being taken care of. And that may be by being good or it may be a completely alternate strategy like, you know, uh, scaring everybody into if you don't take care of me, I'm going to do something crazy. Or So it isn't necessarily a logical strategy, but it's one that you find that you, you know, kind of develop in at a very young age that you think works and that it continues through uh, throughout life. Yeah, and I'd like to say something about as adults, uh, our strategies shift to uh, being valued enough to be uh, taken care of, uh, to be paid. Uh, so we strive really hard to uh, get paid well to satisfy our financial needs. And so we compete with others in the marketplace. Uh, we compete in academics. Uh, uh, and also, in my own case, uh, there was a time when I, I was a lawyer, and I practiced to be a lawyer. And so uh, that's a very ego-driven profession, by the way, if you haven't noticed. Uh, attorneys are constantly trying to outcompete other attorneys and always trying to be the one who's right. And so I had a lot of uh, problems with uh, having to always uh, be the one who was right, having the right answers, particularly when I'm just meeting face-to-face with a client. Even if it's somebody brand new, who's trying to suss me out and see if I'm going to get their business. And so I have to uh, look like I know what I'm talking about. And there were times when I took on cases that I didn't really know much, 
but I figured I would do my homework after I got the client. <laughs> and uh, that's one of the things that ego tends to do. We, we, when we're in our egos, we tend to pretend to be more than we are, pretend to know more than we do. And uh, we hope that other people are going to think well of us because of that. Right. <laughs> Until it backfires and blows up in our face, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. In fact, I'd like to uh, bring out something about this, one of the downfall consequences uh, out of uh, that book, Living with Reality. Uh, Beth points out that from the infancy, the survival of the infant is dependent not only on its own well-being, but the well-being all around it, the highest good of all. Now, if the ego is just driven by its own ego need for survival and using its, using its instinctive mechanisms, the baby cries and demands, unaware of the negative impact it is already having on the world around it. The negative impact is, it is already have on the whole, including itself. Whereas a mom has a need to be uh, well enough to take care of the baby. So the infant uh, shouldn't, uh, uh, there, there needs to be some sort of checks and balances here. Uh, the ego needs to have checks and balances for the highest good of other people so that other people are well enough so that everyone's needs get taken care of. So that's one of the themes of Interrevolutionary Radio is uh, trying to cultivate more of a, of a sense of oneness with others, uh, accountability for the impacts we have on others, and mutual support, that we support the whole, the highest good of all, trusting that that will in turn support our highest good. So, uh, Todd, would you like to ask the next question? Sure. What does the ego reward us with? Yeah, uh, I'd like to share about that. Uh, I recently uh, had a run-in with my spouse where uh, I was very aware that um, my ego was telling me that I can't let myself be dominated by her, and by God, I had to assert my independence. And so I went for a feeling of power. And I've noticed throughout my life uh, that when I'm really in my ego and I go for that feeling of power, even if it's a, a way of like being angry, you know, I feel powerful when I'm angry. And of course, that's real, real great for cultivating uh, positive, harmonious relationships, right? <laughs> and, uh, but it, uh, it gives me a temporary puffed up feeling. But I want to confess here that uh I have to admit that I am addicted to my ego. Now, when I talk about the ego, I'm not talking about being egotistical per se. It's that we have a part of us that is the ego and another part of us that's our authentic self. The ego is that conditioned self that's built up all those strategies and ways to uh, run the show. And I want to tell you... uh, my having let my ego run the show has done a lot to mess up my life. For instance, uh, from the time I was a freshman in college, I let my ego persuade me that I needed to just go for a degree that, where I could make the most money with the least effort. <laughs> so not having any in accounting or economics, I decided to major in accounting and economics because uh, I thought that that would be something to really be a nice, comfortable living. Well, it turns out I didn't have aptitude for it. I never passed the CPA exam. I passed three-fourths of it, but I didn't pass it all. I couldn't go on to that. And indeed, I redirected my energies to then going to law school. I figured, <laughs> hey, lawyers make a lot of money. And so my goal then was to become a tax attorney, join a big firm, and make lots of money. My ego was just running me ragged. 
And of course, I worked my ass off. Oops, excuse me. I worked my butt off uh, in college to make good grades, then on to law school to make good grades, and uh, and so on. But it was really messing me up. Uh, luckily, I had a, a shift in my thinking and orientation when I was in law school, and I decided to join the anti-poverty program instead and uh, help people in need. But uh, the ego uh, was really going for giving me that puffed-up feeling of getting money, getting power, and prestige. Uh, Todd, do you have any, any thoughts uh, you might like to share about that? Yeah, I mean, I can definitely relate to the same kind of uh, path in terms of my career. Um, things that would get me uh, financially secure or also just get me notoriety, like a, a sense of looking, being important, being noticed. You know, that's definitely an ego thing. Um, you know, when I was in college, I majored in radio and television, and I wanted to be a television newscaster. So everyone would have to listen to me every day, read the yeah. news. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, and here I am on the radio now even, but I don't, you know, I don't really feel my ego is driving me in the way that it had in the past, you know, uh, because of the support of the innerrevolution.org community, the men's group, and really learning to, learning, for one, what was happening, like how the ego tricks us into thinking that all those things are, are what's going to make us happy. But then, you know, we all discover at some point or another that you do these things and you're no better off. You know, you don't really feel great about yourself. So, you know, then it, it kind of gives you evidence to try a different strategy. And that is to be more, like you said, in the oneness. So. Yeah, that's, that's well said. By the way, I noticed that there's a caller on hold, Scotty and Ramona. Scotty, can you hear me? Yes, I can Scotty, would you like to join the discussion? Is there something you'd like yeah. to share or ask yeah, about? Yeah, I would. I really appreciate this discussion. Uh, it really touches uh, something close to my heart. Uh, uh, what I was recognizing uh, about my ego is in my addiction days, I noticed that my, my ego was very uh, uh, very activated back then. Um, you know, it, I'm looking at it from a sober side now. When I look back, you know, I was, uh, you know, playing the big shot. Uh, you know, always uh, uh, never going to be criticized, you know, going to be the uh, uh, always in charge, uh, just like what you were talking about in your uh, earlier uh, talk. Uh, and then, you know, I recognize today where I don't have that nearly as driven as I, as I used to. And so uh, I think you know, failure is the great ego buster. I mean, it, when, you, when you have a failure in your life and you're humiliated, and you begin again through uh, recovery, uh, I think it really, uh, it really shakes your ego up, and it gives you an opportunity to gain more control um, uh, of your ego, at least be more aware uh, when you're out of control. So I had a couple questions. You know, what drives the ego to one-up others? Uh, you know, I have a couple bullets here. You know, I, you know is it like I'm better than you? Uh, is it to cover up my insecurities? So I think that's a great uh, uh, for, uh, area for me to look at. You know, what activates my ego, uh, you know, so I can be more in touch with, uh, uh, you know, what, uh, when it does get activated. So I'd uh, like to hear what you have to say about that. Well, there's something I'd like to say about it, and that is, uh, like Todd pointed out, 
It starts from earliest infancy. From the very beginning, to me it's the survival, the drive to survive, the drive to have your needs met. So right away, uh, the, the baby is competing for the mother's attention with the father or whoever is in the household. And if there's brothers and sisters, it's competing with them too. And so it spends its whole life competing to have, to be one up, to be to have the edge, to be the ones getting the attention to get those needs met. Uh, I noticed it myself in my family. I had to be one up on my brother. And, and, and as it turned out uh, in my family dynamics, my father always had to be one up on me, and he always was one up on me. And so, but he, uh, in order for me to get his favor, I had to uh, compete to be one up in my arena, my arenas, so that he would approve of me. Uh, so that's that's what I would say. Todd, is there anything you might like to, to say about that? No, I think you nailed it in terms of what you know what drives the ego to one up others. It's it's you know feeling that uh, you know that in the in the mode of the competitive world that we're a part of, you know, we, it's very hard to relax into the comfort of being with others. You know, we're kind of always on this stage, uh, as you both have talked about, being in band, you know, uh, competing against others, uh, being on stage and trying and having to outdo others. You know, it's built into the fabric yeah. of our culture. And so it makes it very difficult to relax. And if you're not, you know, it, you it's hard to relax when you feel you're always, you know, tr- you know, having to uh, be better than someone in, you know, in some place because they're going to come back and try and get you in a dub- in another place where you're where you're not as good, you know. So it just it fuels this whole kind of caustic dynamic, is is what I feel. Um, so. Yeah, and so the ego whips uh, whips us on to compete and compete and compete to be on our guard. And also to convince us that it needs to do what the ego tells us. Otherwise, we're, we're toast. We're not, we're not going to yeah. have it. We're not going to have what we need. When it's actually the opposite, uh, we, we lose a lot by doing what the ego wants us to. We lose connection with other people. We become more isolated and alone. Uh, you know, and so life becomes tougher and, and actually scarier because we don't feel this, this so much the support of other people. So, Scott, yeah, Scotty, was there another uh, question you wanted to ask? Uh, no, that was it. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. oh, awesome. Thank you, Scotty. Thanks for calling in. Thank you. Thank you for You're calling. Welcome. We have another caller also in uh, in San Diego, and that's Amy. Oh, hi, guys. You're doing a great hi. job. Oh, well, thank, thank you. you. You're welcome. And I realized that in a way, being solo all my life, I've never been married, that I've taken on some of the attributes of so-called masculinity and that I have to show that I'm smart, like going to med school, to prove to my dad, to get his attention. And I do that with pretty much everyone. I try to show them that I'm smarter than they are and at the same time that I need more attention than they do. And um, from the side of women doing more chores, I still remember some years ago at Thanksgiving looking around and everyone, including my age, men, were in the kitchen and all the ladies were out setting up the table. And I uh, stopped everybody and I said, what is going on here? You guys are just as capable of doing this. So I noticed it from the female point of view looking at the men and at the same time I noticed it from my own perspective being 
the only breadwinner and what's it going to take to do that? And I use some of the same um, strategies, ways of getting that that uh, you guys have mentioned. Yeah. And how's that working out for you, Amy? Was there any, <laughs> that, any down, did you find any downside to that? Yes. On uh, relationships, I want all the attention, which is too much for, uh-huh. for any guy, no matter how easygoing <laughs> they are. Um, let's see. That reminds I try me to get of all the, the attention uh, for my mom. Yeah. By the way, that reminds me of the slogan for MTV, too much is never enough. <laughs> Yeah, okay. and the phrase, you can never have too much of what you don't need. <laughs> That's a great one. <laughs> so you were saying about attention from your mom? Yeah, attention from oh, my dad, uh, wanting to push my brother and sister away so I could get that attention. Oh, yeah. And competing with my dad because he wanted my mom's attention too and didn't want anything to do with us because we took that away from him. Mm. So just competing for attention on, on all fronts. And um, I, I was going to think this through further and come up with other things to put on the list, but I think those are the main ones um, that, I, that I feel a bit of the way men feel and women feel by being solo. Amy, there's something about that dynamic with your father. So you can see that what it cost you was alienating your father because taking your mother's attention away from him. So if you could have it, have it to do over again, if you could do a redo, is there some redo that you could do that would include your father and show him more love or anything like that? Such that well, you might have a different scenario. Things with my mom uh-huh. rather yeah. than he's there and we're here. Mm. But also it costs me, trying to prove to him that I'm smart, costs me something like you said um, was about doing something that I was uh, going into a field that I was not um, suited for. Yeah. Which wow, is medical that... school. And um, f- finally pursuing music, which is my real love, and my ego is telling me there's no way that's going to work. <laughs> so the ego is still there. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Amy, I really, relate, I really relate to that because I spent decades yeah. uh, w- wasting time on a career that I was ill-suited for. Yeah, I have a better aptitude for music as well, you know, playing the trumpet and singing and composing, stuff like that. So it cost me a lot, too. For both of us, it cost us decades of our lives because your career went on for decades, I assume. Right. And I'm still in the I want somebody to take care of me mode, Ah. which is one of the masculine things you were talking about. Like somebody should, should just do that. And they should clean my house, too. There's no reason I should stoop to doing something as low as that. Oh, yeah, because you're a doctor. I mean, Dr. God. <laughs> so I've taken on that masculine view. That goes with the I'm title, I'm not doing right? any of this stuff. <laughs> anyway, I've gone on long enough, but I just wanted okay. to share a combination female-male perspective. Awesome. Thanks Thank so you. much. We've got a couple more callers, too. Um, should we continue with the same conversation, or how does it impact us? So I think that's the question yes. we're answering. How's the... The, uh, the reward, um, you know, the ego's reward, how does that ultimately impact us? So let's take Irene from San Diego. Oh, thanks. I actually, mine is similar to uh, Amy's, uh, but it, what, the question that came up to me is, do men have a different ego than women? Because everything you described, 
about the ego, I experienced a with with a slightly different tilt, similar to Amy's, that I wanted to be taken care of too. Mm. Well, uh, I could talk. I could talk about that difference from my own angle. Uh, well, uh, certainly as a boy growing up, uh, my conditioning included uh, competing in sports. In fact, that was the main arena for most of us boys. Whereas I didn't see too many girls competing in sports. Uh, they would be doing other things, more feminine kinds of things, perhaps. Although academically, of course, the competition was there, both male and female. But in the sports, uh, football, uh, one of them, we were hyper-aggressive, physically aggressive, hitting each other, pushing each other, tackling each other. Or whatever sport we played, we competed all out to dominate and prevail over the other person. So I think that contributes to a different kind of uh, ego uh, aggressiveness than the, the female ego. That's my personal feeling. That is, that is so interesting, um, James, because I think you really hit on it. Because the one thing, I can compete, uh, but uh, I, I, sh- I don't show my aggression. I think part mm-hmm. of the female ego is to be underhanded and not to look like they're aggressive, but to keep feeling that I'm superior and holding that energy with with someone else rather than being out in front and just letting it show. Yeah. And it's interesting how Trump, well, our, one of our um, candidates for president really doesn't make any secret of how he wants to win and expects to. And the female, who I think also very much wants to win and expect to, doesn't, isn't as uh, what I consider outrageous about it. Mm -hmm. Out front about it. Yeah, Yeah, more more covert. (laughs) Yeah, I think that I've answered, or we've answered my question, which is the female ego is more covert. Yeah. Perhaps. I mean, you know, these are generalizations, so nothing holds true in all cases, you know, so that's the interesting thing is that, um, you know, there's a dynamic that I've seen that the the, and heard also is that the male ego is kind of like the look at me. I'm awesome. I'm the best. I'm, you know, I'm uh, and the female ego often is self, you know, uh, self-critical, like I'm no good. I'm nobody. uh, I'm nothing. Um, so that's another potential uh, contrast there. But again, these don't; these are generalizations. They don't hold true for every person. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Thanks for your call, much, Irene. Okay, we have another, another caller, Rose in San Diego. Rose, are you here? Yes. Hi. All right. Hi. I have a comment, and then I have a question. Um, I wanted to talk about the way that. Egos can complement each other. I don't know if compliment's the best word to use, but can trigger each other. And it comes in the form, in in my world, in my life, with my husband being someone like a male that wants to provide, and I'm a female who wants to, you know, be taken care of. That's been mentioned about the females. But the way that that can just go on for years in a default way, you know, and not ever be challenged. And once challenged, I've realized in my life, um, 
that I was holding myself back. You know, I had much more living and growing to do, and if I had just, you know, went along in that life, that default way, I would have never grown really much, right? Yeah. So I'm, right. I'm grateful to say <laughs> that I'm, <laughs> I'm part of the interrevolution.org that has a couples group that works on um, uh, unveiling these things and supporting us to be, you know, kind of all we can be, right? Beyond the ego. So I, I'm grateful to be a part of that. I'm and, glad uh, that you are, Rose, and that you have that opportunity <laughs> to not just kind of sit there and have someone take care of you, but, you know, be challenged to grow and become, you know, you know, fulfill your potential, if, if you will. Yeah. I mean, I've seen that, you know, I've seen you grow in ways that are just have been amazing. So, and, and I'd like to speak to that, uh, what you've shared about by uh, wanting to be taken care of, you allowed yourself to be dependent on another person uh, in, in a kind of a vulnerable kind of space. And like you said, you were able to blossom and grow more uh, after doing that. And it also put a limitation on your spouse because it put more burden on him. Now, mm-hmm. I, can, I can talk about that from experience. Uh, I was once married to a woman who was much younger than me, and so I had much more worldly experience and education and so on. And the burden was all on me all the time. And it added a lot to my insecurity, and it, it, it really uh, compounded uh, the difficulty that I had uh, making a living, coping in the world, uh, uh, and uh, having a, a relationship that was uh, more of a relationship of peers rather than one dependent person and the other person uh, shouldering so much of the burden. So, so we're glad that you're making the shift. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Because it creates <laughs> more relaxation for both of you, I would think. It does. Or, it really, yeah. really does. And we feel less, uh, like you described, James, we feel less like it's all on one person. I mean, no one gets through life in that feeling of it's all on me without being scared sometimes, probably a lot of times, and, and that's a, just a lousy way to live life is to be in that fear of making a mistake or getting, it, you know, getting through life, right? So it's, it's wonderful to have the support of others and, and live more in the oneness, and, and we all have something to offer and so much to offer. Um, I want to move on to my question, though, and that is, um, do you think all competition is bad? I used to play tennis with a good friend of mine, and when we played, we kept score. And we kept score, we played at a higher level than when we didn't. Now, we didn't care who won. It really wasn't a matter of that. We, we almost just kept score of how many games we played, you know, in that way. But we actually did keep the regular score. I would just wonder if you have anything to say about whether all competition is bad. Thanks. That's a really good question. James, do you want to answer yeah. that? Or I, I'd like to re- I, yeah, I'd like to respond to it. I think, uh, I think the, the healthiest kind of competition is when you're competing against yourself or against an objective standard. Like, say, in track, uh, competing against a, a particular uh, best speed or swimming uh, a best speed, that sort of thing. But when you start going uh, competing against somebody else across the net, uh, I think it's a slippery slope. Uh, there's a natural tendency to want to prove yourself, and that's an ego thing. I got to prove myself that I'm as good as that person, or uh, I can keep up, or I can prevail. Uh, it's a slippery slope, and so yeah. um, 
So uh, I will tell you that my, yeah, my wife and I, uh, we have converted those kinds of games into cooperative games where we try to do our best to help the other person do well. For instance, uh, in badminton, we've changed it to a volleybird. We call it volleybird, where we try to keep the volley going and help the other person have an easy shot to hit back. Or uh, ping pong. We call it volley pong, where we do the same thing, and we have a ball, and there's no pressure to, to compete or perform. And uh, it's one of the most fun games I've ever played in my life. Uh, so we, we have a, a shared joy. Uh, the only competing is we, I, I tend to keep track of how many strokes we were able to have together uh, and compete against our own uh, standard or not, although my wife could care less, but I, I kind of like it. So anyway, there we are. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so that's my answer. It's a slippery slope. If you can yeah. convert it into competing with yourself only and not trying to win over the other person, which gets into that one-upmanship, then, uh, yeah, uh, I guess you could do competition, even in those arenas, if you can keep it to that level. I'd like to respond as well. I think it depends on the context. And, you know, what I like about what you shared when you played tennis is you both, you said you didn't care about who won. It was really a way to challenge yourself. So it's it's another one of those things that um, I agree with James that it, it, it so easily becomes a slippery slope because of the culture that we're a part of. But if we made the culture different, some... I wouldn't like to call it competition. I would like to call it, you know, challenge or mm. something that... Um, makes us, you know, it's very hard for us to know when we're in our ego, when we're going over a, a safe limit. And I think that's part of the challenge of many sports, Olympics and so forth. You know, they, that kind of intense competition can feed a desire to cheat, can feed a desire to, you know, to uh, overextend ourselves, hurt right, ourselves. Right, hurt ourselves, I was just going to say. Yeah. yeah, we can do so, that, yeah. So it's very paradoxical because we, you know, we have to be, um, you know, uh, what's the word, connected with ourselves, connected with the universe to really know what the right, uh, you know, what the correct thing is to do in that particular moment. So um, I know that's kind of a... <laughs> no, I mean, what you're saying is it takes answer, a lot of consciousness. But, it takes a lot of consciousness yeah. and the slippery slope is right there. And so we have to really pay attention to what's happening in the moment and what we're getting motivated by or triggered to do. So thank yes. you so much. I really appreciate the conversation. Me too. Thanks Wonderful. for your call, Rose. Thank you. We have another caller. So I think this is going to have to be our last caller because we have a couple other things we definitely need to talk about. But we That's have right. uh, Helen. Hello, Helen. Hi. You guys are doing a great job, and I'm enjoying the listening to your conversation. Um, I want to ask you how... How have you been able to intervene with your egos, especially in relationship issues, but just even in general, I'd like to have you talk about that. Uh, I'd like What's to respond to that. Because I had an issue come up very intensely in my uh, spousal relationship. Uh, and... Uh, we basically identified the fact that I, I strive to uh, prove my significance, prove myself, and uh, this had to do with the election campaign and my, my wanting to run and get some uh, signs to put up, even though it was interfering with our schedule and the things we needed to do and all that stuff. I was driven 
to do that. And then I felt thwarted when she says, no, I don't think we should do that. And, uh, and I got angry and all that stuff. And so uh, how I wound up dealing with that, she, she, she gets weakened when I direct anger at her. It's like a psychic attack or it's an energetic attack on the other person. And this has gone on uh, throughout our entire relationship. Every, every time I get angry at her and then I justify my anger, which is another big egoic thing. And of course, uh, I've done various things uh, within this uh, organization that I'm a part of, this community, where I would call and, and ask for help, uh, try to get straightened out and then recognize my part and so on. But now that I've come to the point where I realize I'm addicted to my ego, not just I have an ego that sometimes acts out, uh, I've actually taken it on as an actual addiction. I wrote out 12 steps for uh, being an ego addict, such as admitting that I'm dominated by ego and that my life has become unmanageable and turning things over to the higher power, things like that. And I've even gone to the, the, the length of uh, going on, uh, getting something onto my smartphone that helps me to track when I act out of ego. And it's called my mystical toolkit. <laughs> and, and I just went to the Play Store, downloaded it, and I can keep a journal of whenever I stop being sober from uh, refraining from ego. Uh, and so far, I, I, I've only been able to be sober for a few hours at a time. Uh, this is not like AA where you can be sober from alcohol for months and even years. Uh, so I'm tracking myself. I keep a journal of when I uh, uh, go into my ego, and, uh, and then I do a nightly review to see what happened with my ego. So these are some of the things I'm doing. I'm also in a uh, Emotions Anonymous uh, online uh, Skype call uh, to get support, like in AA, to support me in uh, getting control, more control over my uh, emotional reactivity. So those are some of the things I do. That's awesome, James. Wow. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Thank you. Well, I've had to take it on as an actual addiction. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I'd like to ask the question, who among us isn't addicted to our ego, you know? <laughs> so there we are. So, uh, Todd, was there something you might like to share about how you uh, intervene with yourself? or? Yeah, I'd like to respond. I mean, I'm kind of – I've become more – uh, clued into the ego's uh, tricks, you know, especially with me, with my wife. You know, I'll hear like, she's not doing this. She's not doing that. She's, uh, uh, uh. and I'm like, oh, okay, you know, like, is this really, is this really based in reality? Is this, or is this my ego? Um, so it's, it's, it's um, just, I think, listening to that inner voice with discernment and, you know, being able to decipher, okay, is this, you know, is this God talking? Is this the universe talking to me or or is this my ego? So that's a pretty helpful uh, distinction or differentiation um, that, you know, I didn't always have. Like I always thought that, you know, literal voice in my head was me, but it isn't, you know, I I mean, it is and it isn't, but it's really like, okay, which voice is that? Because I think we all have that. And um, so, and sometimes I won't catch it until later, and then in that case, I go and apologize, you know, or make amends if it's a more, um, you know, egregious, uh, you know, it depends on the level of impact. Um, sometimes just saying we're sorry and you know, I really realize that hurt you and I, I'm sorry. 
sometimes it requires something more. And we have our amends process in the Living with Reality book, which you can get for free from our website at theinnerrevolution.org. If you just go to the homepage, it's, you'll see a little um, place to put your email in, and you can download the book for free. And in the back of the book, there's a whole section on making amends. And uh, it's an extremely powerful process that Beth came up with that um, you know, creates a, 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 a true amends, a true uh, healing, uh, if you will. So thanks for the question, Helen. I think that's a really important one to help people, you know, not just berate themselves for having an ego, but, you know, learning some of the uh, ways that we can get around it, not let it dominate us. One of them is just saying stop, right? So do you have anything else? Yeah, thank you for your answers. They were both really, really helpful. I love James's idea of taking it on as an addiction is so powerful and mm-hmm. so true that if you take it on as an addiction, it, you're, you're really saying, I'm seriously holding myself accountable. And yeah, then using right. that, that tool of intervening and asking if this is God talking, that's, that is awesome too, Todd. So thank you both very much. Thank you, Paul. So, Todd, shall we go on now to some announcements? Yes. So, tell us about your men's retreat this weekend. Alrighty then. Uh, this Sunday, October the 23rd, from 9.30 to 2 p.m., there's going to be a retreat on this very same theme of the show, Men and Their Egos, A Halloween Tale, only going much more deeply individually, uh, exploring things with each of our lives about how does the ego punish us when we give ourselves what our souls crave, It tells us that we're weak, wimpy, a pussy, stupid, not manly. How are we then vulnerable to either competing with other men or giving in to those who look more powerful than we, whether it's Adolf Hitler or Donald Trump? If you are being haunted by the ego telling you who and what to be, join us. We'll be telling the ego, you can't scare us anymore. We'll take a stand for embracing a world of synergy and love. We can do this together. Let's take back our power from the ego and become Real men for real. So don't miss this opportunity to revolutionize what it is to be a man. I think that's so cool. Uh, what a great time. You're around Halloween. I know we're going to have a lot of fun. So it's this coming <laughs> Sunday, uh, October 23rd. It's from 930 to 2. And it will. it's available in, in person in San Diego. And it's also available to anyone really around the entire world through internet video conferencing. So you can... Um, learn more about it. It's going to be led by Beth, our founder. She's a fantastic intuitive counselor. And um, if you go to the innerrevolution.org, there's a menu item that says upcoming events. If you go there, you can find out all about it. Or you could contact Richard DeSanto at 760-518-8350 or email him at richard at the innerrevolution.org. And to learn more about the men's you can go to innerrevolutionarymen, that's innerrevolutionarymen.org. Great. And we have another announcement. Uh, Upcoming uh, Saturday, October the 29th, uh, is going to be Humans Having a Real Conversation, and that's 3 to 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Are you tired of the anger and downright meanness of this election cycle? I know I am. If so, let's get together and do something about it. 
Come to Humans for real, a Real Conversation, a meeting in person in multiple private homes and simultaneously via video conference, where we have an honest conversation about the issues of our day and what to do about them. Let's get real, talk about what we have in common, hear one another, and speak from the heart. Uh, this will be in person in multiple locations or video conference anywhere. Uh, and Beth Green, uh, the founder of TheInRevolution.org, will kick off the event with a brief talk. And then Helen Helix, a licensed uh, marriage and family therapist, will lead the discussion, providing support for a thoughtful and thought-provoking experience. This is a free event, by the way, although we're asking for a donation of $10 to support the work. And it is tax deductible uh, because it's a nonprofit organization, theinterrevolution.org. Uh, or you can contact Chris Reese at chris at theinterrevolution.org or her phone, 760-505-4312. So, yeah, please contact us about that. If I mean, we'd love to for you to join us and kind of help to shift the conversation and see what our where we hold common ground instead of being so polarized. So you can contact Chris to find out where the private locations, the private homes locations are, or how to join us on the web conferencing service. You can RSVP to her. Once again, that's Chris at the inner revolution.org or 760-505-4312. James, you want to tell us what we're doing next week? Yes, be happy to. Next week is the topic, the new sexual revolution, gender outside the box. The old hate Ashbury days of free love are over, but that doesn't mean there isn't a sexual revolution happening. Just look at the news. Younger people especially are exploring gender roles and identities in more open ways. What does it mean to be pansexual, as Miley Cyrus calls it? What does it mean to be gender fluid, as one of our guests describes herself? Is there still such a thing as bisexual, or is that completely out? Why is the word queer back in the mix after years of being a pejorative term? What is the right pronoun to use for gender neutral? Join us for a lively, frank, and open conversation among a panel of honest people who live in the reality of this new sexual revolution. What does it mean to them, and what could it mean for you and the people you touch? So tune in and find out. And now for a final word. Well, this is really fun, and it went by so fast. My goodness. <laughs> yes, it's been very rich. So if you'd like to continue on with this discussion, you know, we, we are on Facebook. And uh, if you send a, a message, start a conversation, uh, we'd be happy to respond. Uh, so the Facebook site is uh, Beth Green and the Inner Revolution. You can you just, just type, for type that. it in. Yes, or you can put in Facebook facebook.com forward slash the inner rev that's t-h-e-i-n-n-e-r-r-e-v the inner rev that's our url so join us on facebook we'll be once this uh recording is available online we'll be uh putting it out there via facebook and you can use that to comment and you know tell us your what you think what how the ego how you're trying to get a hold of or you know take on your ego yeah, yeah, it's quite a challenge. It's quite a challenge, but it's really a, a, an important thing to do if you want to get free, to be yourself, to, to connect with your authentic nature and enjoy the fruits of that. So hopefully uh, you'll join us in this quest. And by the way, uh, uh, Todd and I both have Facebook uh, sites as well. 
And so if you want to continue the conversation with either of us, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly open to uh, continuing the conversation in that way as well. Same with me, Todd, facebook.com forward slash Todd.Benton. Beautiful, beautiful. For me, just go to the, the uh, Facebook and just type in a search for James Maynard, uh, who resides in Oregon, <laughs> in case you get more, more than one James Maynard. Okay, right. well, there we are. It's so fun working with you. You know, we have our own, we have our own history of ego uh, battling amongst <laughs> ourselves. So I'm we so do. glad we were able to oh. collaborate in this way oh. and, and uh, have fun doing it. So well, I love it. I love it. It's a wonderful synergy, uh, us working together in this way. I really love it. It's great. Me too. Have a okay. great week, everyone. Yeah, same here. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.